Welcome to the Asbury Free Methodist Broadcast, where today we will be listening to this week's sermon by Pastor Brent Russell. Well, uh, before we get into the meat of this account, this first century document, I want to remind you of a couple of things about the Gospel of John or the good news of John. Remember, John's family name was Zebedee. His father was a fisherman. And John left his father's fishing nets and he followed Jesus because of what he saw and heard. He wrote, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. And by the time he wrote his account of the time he spent with Jesus, John was an old man and likely the last of the disciples living. He probably dictated this gospel and had it written down by scribes. But in his gospel, John doesn't just tell us what happened. He tells us why it happened and why he wants us to know it happened. And he does this by building his gospel account around seven miracles which he calls signs. He turned water into wine. He healed the official's son. He healed a man uh, at the pool of Bethesda. He fed the 5,000. Jesus walked on water. He healed the man born blind, and he raised Lazarus from the dead. These were not random healings that he chose to include. These were specifically chosen by John so he could build this account around uh, the gospel so, and, and so that we would learn something. These were signs, and the signs point to something, and John tells us what they were pointing to. In John 20, uh, verse 30, 31, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And when he says life in his name, he's talking about eternal life. Eternal life doesn't start, it's not something that starts when you die. Eternal life is living this life knowing that there is something beyond this life. And John knew that, and John wants you and I to know it. Between the first miracle of Jesus, the water into wine miracle, and the second, we've jumped over a couple of chapters. And Jesus did some things, which I'm going to mention, to help understand the current passage. First, we read in in John chapter 2, he went to Jerusalem for the Passover, and while he was there, Uh, at the Passover. Many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. So that was one of the things that happened. And secondly, Jesus went through Samaria where a remarkable move of the Spirit was witnessed. I'm going to talk a little bit about that. But now let's look at the account starting with John 4.43. After two days, he left for Galilee. After two days. After two days is a reference to the two days Jesus had spent in Sychar in Samaria, where there had been a remarkable 
and unlikely move of the Spirit. Why was it unlikely? Well, if you went through Samaria, you did save yourself some time. But most serious Jews avoided Samaria at all costs. There had been an animosity and hatred between Jews and Samaritans for 500 years, and the Jews would not step on their property. So they skirted around Samaria, even though it took longer. But John says Jesus had to go through Samaria, and he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar. Why did Jesus have to go? Samaria. He could have gone around, but it says he had to go through Samaria. Well, God sent Jesus into this world that he loved, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And God's love and grace and mercy are for the whole world. And sometimes God leads us to places that are unlikely and challenging and downright difficult when we bring that message of grace and healing. So um, it made me think of an incident last year in August. I ended up in a hospital waiting room. Uh, I was going in for a uh, procedure, and it was a, a, a biopsy of my abdomen. And we were mask, wearing masks, and everybody was socially distanced, you know, six feet. And in that, um, in that room, there was one other man, and then a woman came in, and she was clearly distressed. Um, and she, she said, are, oh, are you here uh, to pick somebody up? And I said, no, I'm here for a procedure. And I said, what about you? And she started crying. And she told us uh, she had a lump under her arm uh, that was going to be biopsied. But she said, but my, my partner had come in last year for a, a procedure and he died while he was in the ta on the table. And she said, I'm just terrified. So I asked her if I could pray with her. And in that waiting room, I can tell you that the spirit of the living God was palpable. God was there. And I, I prayed a prayer for her, for her protection and for her healing and for, for her well-being. And she was, she was crying but she was touched, and no sooner had, she fin had I finished praying um, than the nurse came, she left, and I never saw her again. I looked over at the other fellow who was six feet away from me, and he had bowed his head and prayed too. So it, it, was, it was like, had God used my illness to lead me to be available to minister his grace and mercy in that unlikely moment? Absolutely yes. God redeems things. God takes every opportunity if you're available. And I felt like the Spirit of God ministered grace and mercy to the people in that waiting room. Well, Jesus had to go through Samaria to minister his grace and mercy. And John 4.39 says, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. That's the reference to the two days that we began this passage with. And because of his words, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, 
We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. I wish I could have been there for those two days. <laughs> Think about it. Jesus pours out his heart to this people group who have never heard the gospel. They don't know anything about him. And he shares his heart with them and they come to believe that he is the Lamb of God, God himself. And they declare, now we know that Jesus is the Savior of the world. It's a wonderful testimony. Now Jesus continues on his journey north through Samaria among his own people in Galilee. And it says, when he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they had also been there. The passage says they welcomed him. But it's, um, it's interesting because he said a prophet has no honor in his own home. So uh, what's going on here? Well, they welcomed him because they had seen the miracles there in Jerusalem at the Passover, and there was an expectation that he was going to do the same miracles here. And that's why they were there. In contrast to that, the Samaritans believed his word. And that's the point John is making. The Galileans were interested in his miracles, but the Samaritans had believed in his word. In verse 46, it says, Once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned water into wine. So he's back in Cana. And the news and rumors of the miracles had gotten to Capernaum, about 20 miles away. The reports and stories travel fast, and we learn that there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. A royal official, someone from the royal household. The Greek word used here implies that he was higher up in the ranks, maybe a nobleman or the manager of a royal household. And the royalty here was Herod, Herod Antipas, who ruled from 4 BC to 39 AD. This is the Herod who, when he was rebuked by John the Baptist, had John imprisoned and beheaded. So here's this royal official, maybe Herod's household manager, and he's well-connected. He would have been doing very well financially but he carries a great burden. His son is ill. And with all his power and connections and wealth, there's nothing more he could do for his son. Not only is his son ill, we learn he is close to death. He leaves his son at the point of death and travels the 20 miles to Cana at this point, the royal official had no special interest in what Jesus had to say in his teaching. He came to Jesus for one reason. Jesus was his last hope. Reminded me of the woman who, had, who was subject to the bleeding. Do you remember her from the book of Luke? She had been, had bleeding for 12 years and she had been under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had and she had only gotten worse. Well, I expect this royal official had done the same. I'm, I expect he had, his son had been under the care 
of many doctors. He was a rich person. There would have been people around who would have been saying, we're going to get him better and applied all their skills. But he did not get better, and Jesus was his last hope. May I say that God uses all kinds of circumstances to begin his work in a person's life? Or to deepen a work that's already following God? Our troubles are God's school. The pastor who married Sharon and I once said, thank God for anything that drives you closer to him. I'm going to leave that thought and come back to it later and continue with our account of the royal official. And when the royal official arrives, what Jesus says to him is not encouraging. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you'll never believe. It's a word of rebuke. And Jesus is saying, if you could have gone anywhere else, you would not be coming to me today. And Jesus includes him in this group of people who are looking for signs and wonders. But to his credit, he's not put off, and he says, Sir, come down before my child dies. The royal official has put his esteemed place in society aside, and it says he's begging Jesus. Desperation is written on his face. Please, I, I beg you, Jesus, on behalf of my son, on behalf of my family, I've tried everything. Nothing has worked. Come with me to Capernaum. He thinks his only option is that Jesus accompany him the 20 miles back to Capernaum, go into his house, and heal his son. I can see Jesus smiling here. He doesn't need to travel the 20 miles for this healing to happen. And he says to the official, go, your son will live. It's a beautiful and authoritative truth that what Jesus says will happen, will happen. Go, your son will live. Friends, when Jesus says your sins are forgiven, they are forgiven. John later wrote, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. When Jesus went to the tomb of Lazarus, who'd been dead four days, and says, come forth, Lazarus came out. When Jesus says, everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day, he has the authority to make that happen you will be raised up to eternal life on the last day. What Jesus says will happen, will happen. Go, your son will live. Well, the man didn't see the miracle, but he believed his word. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. And we learn a little later on that at that moment, Jesus spoke those words, your son will live. A remarkable miracle took place 20 miles away. Put yourself in the home of that woman with her child and the family, sick boy's room. He's close to death. And suddenly, his fever breaks. He stirs. 
He's feeling better. His mother's surprised. The servants are confused. They're running around. What has happened? They have no idea what has occurred. Not the faintest idea. The royal official wife picks up her cell phone and calls her husband. No. Uh, the boy's father's 20 miles away. The mother sees the miracle, but the father doesn't. All he has is the word of Jesus, your son will live. And in a sense, this man, this royal official, models for us what the Christian life is like. We walk by faith and not by sight. John Zebedee, the author of the gospel, he walked by sight. He leaned into the bosom of Jesus and heard the life-giving words. He saw the crowds fed with generous portions of fish and bread, the miraculous healings. He saw Jesus walk on water. Most importantly, he saw the resurrection of Jesus from the tomb. That's walking by sight. But since then, for 2,000 years, we walk by faith. When we're facing difficulties, anxieties, pain, and trouble, and in this world you will have trouble, we walk by faith. The message version of the New Testament says, it's what we trust in but don't yet see that keeps us going. It's what we trust in but don't yet see that keeps us going. The royal official took Jesus at his word. He trusted his word. He had expected one of two outcomes. Jesus comes with me to Capernaum, heals my son, or he doesn't come. And my son dies. But there was a third option. Trust the word of Christ and go home. Rest in the word of Christ. Rest means to cease work, cease from being troubled. Faith trusts Christ by resting on his word. Christ says he is with us. He says that his grace is sufficient for us. He says that in him there is no condemnation for us who believe. He says that he has gone to prepare a place for us. Trust in the word of Christ. That's what had happened with the Samaritans while the Galileans had needed signs and wonders. And it seems the royal official had to do this for a period of time before being vindicated. We read in chapter, or verse 51, while he was still on his way, his servants met with him with the news that the boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, a fever left him. Yesterday at one in the afternoon, which presumably means that either he walked all night or he had spent some time in Capernaum and or had to rest somewhere along the way. But the point I'm making is that he had to trust the word of Christ, not just for that moment, but for a longer period of time. And that trusting changed the trajectory of his life. I mentioned earlier that the royal official thinks his only option is that Jesus accompany him the 20 miles, go to his house and heal his son. And obviously, he was wrong in supposing 
that Jesus could only accomplish the healing that way. We're the same in some respects, that God can only accomplish what we ask for by doing it in the way we think or prescribe. This is the way we want it to happen, Lord, and we tell him that. God delights in answering our prayers, but in ways that highlight his grace and his glory and his power and his sovereignty. And when illness comes and when hardship and suffering and the storms of life come, and they will, we need to remember that God uses all kinds of circumstances to begin his work in a person's life or to deepen his work in a life that is already following God. Pastor Brent pointed out in his message to the Church of Laodicea last week, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. God's character is love, and so underneath his purposes, underneath his discipline and his rebuke, is his great and glorious love. Now, I needed to learn that. When I got sick last year, one of my first thoughts was to learn everything I could about the disease so I could fight it. And knowledge is good. We need to learn and study and understand and get wisdom about what's going on. But when you're facing hardship and trouble, there is a love that surpasses knowledge. And in his letter... Paul wrote to the Ephesian church an earnest prayer. He said he was kneeling before the Father that they would grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Love surpasses knowledge. It was God's love that kept me moving forward with gratitude in the midst of my trial. And we may never know in this lifetime why we have an illness. I asked the chief respirologist at the Ottawa Hospital last week, why did I get this nasty autoimmune disease? And he said to me, if I knew the answer to that, I'd win the Nobel Prize. However, we do know one thing for sure. God is working. He never stops working out his purpose in all things for our good. Back to the royal official again, there is something he got right. He came to Jesus with his deepest need. His need drove him to his knees, begging for help from the Savior. And he was not disappointed. His son is healed. But it doesn't stop there. The royal official had to come to believe that Jesus Christ really is the Savior of the world. And it says that he and his entire household believed. His entire household. His wife, his son who was so ill, his other children, his extended family, the servants. God had used this painful, desperate situation to minister his love and mercy to an entire household. And it doesn't stop there. Interestingly, there are two people mentioned in the New Testament, followers of the Messiah, who were associated with Herod's household. And they may have been touched by the healing of the royal official's son. The first is Joanna. 
We read that Jesus was going from place to place preaching the kingdom of God. Uh, and there were 12 with him, the disciples, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary, who was called Magdalene, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward. And Susanna and many others who were contributing to their support out of their private means. These people were supporting Jesus and the disciples out of their private means. That means they must have had some, some means to do it with, right? Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household, was a believer contributing to the support of Jesus and his disciples. Was Chusa the wife of the royal official? The mother of the boy Jesus healed? The second is Menaean. We learn in Acts 13. Now in the church of Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, and Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. People who were touched in Herod's household, possibly by the miracle of the healing of the boy's son. We don't know for sure if they were touched by the second miracle, but Isaiah does tell us that when God's word goes out, it accomplishes what he desires. Now, for the most part, I don't know the challenges that you are facing but I know we have a faithful God. Is there a problem in your life, a challenge like the one this man was facing or a nagging unanswered prayer? Jesus said, come to me. Come to me. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble of heart. Jesus says, come to him. Sometimes the answer to our prayers is not a yes or a no, but a person. Jesus, the living God. I'd like us to take a moment and pray together. And just while you're sitting in your pew, if you would just close your eyes and in your own heart, I want you to, to name that thing, that challenge or that difficulty that trial, that illness, and we're, I'm just going to lead you in prayer. We're going to invite the Lord to speak his truth and his mercy and his healing. Lord, you are good, and your love endures forever. And Lord, sometimes you use circumstances in our lives to draw us closer to your heart. To lead us by your great love and mercy to a place where we truly appreciate all you've done for us. So Father, this morning as each individual here is lifting up their own concerns before the throne of God, Father, I pray you would reach down. Your arm is not short. You would touch each person, Lord, or the, and, or the person that they're praying for, and you would begin a work of grace. You would begin a work of healing. You would accomplish a work of healing. 
for your glory and for your goodness. Lord, we are trusting that you have met with us this morning. We're trusting that you're here. So would you now speak healing to each person coming before you? We pause and we thank you. You said to bring our petitions and our prayers before you with thanksgiving. And the peace of Christ that passes understanding will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So we pray all these things together in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to finish with this verse from Psalm 73. The psalmist said, you hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me to glory. Whom, ha whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth, I have nothing. There's nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week on Asbury Free Methodist Broadcast. Make sure to visit our website at asburyfmperth.com where you can subscribe and never miss a show. If you'd like this broadcast, you might want to check out our Facebook page, Asbury Free Methodist Church. Until next week, take care and God bless.